a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 108 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at SholdMediaGroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D MediaGroup.com. This episode was recorded in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom. If you're listening to this on time, this is the week that the National Sports Media Association released the names of the winners of their yearly awards given out at their convention in June, which means they name their Hall of Famers, their sportscasters of the year nationally and sports writers, and they go state by state and give an award to each state's best sportscaster and sports writer as voted upon by their peers in that state. I've been fortunate enough to have nine of the state winners from this year on this podcast, and I just wanted to take a quick moment to publicly recognize all of them. The winners from this year who have been on the pod include Dave Johnson of the Washington Wizards. He won Washington, D.C. Steve Holman of the Atlanta Hawks won Georgia. Gary Dolphin of the University of Iowa, you guessed it, won Iowa. Wyatt Thompson of Kansas State won Kansas. Mike Grimm of the University of Minnesota won Minnesota. Ian Eagle of the Brooklyn Nets won in New York. Dave Sims of the Seattle Mariners won in Washington. Steve Cotton of Marshall University won in West Virginia. And Matt LaPay, the voice of the Wisconsin Badgers, won Wisconsin. Congratulations to those winners and all of the other winners who were honored this year. It's a great honor, and someday I hope I can get one and join you in this exclusive club. Today's guest is Dan Shulman, a native Canadian who works for ESPN in the United States, and when he crosses the border north, does work for Sportsnet in Canada. Dan, welcome to the show, and are you in Canada at this moment? I am, yes. uh, Toronto is my home, and you're finding me north of the border right now. So you are Canadian number three to come on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Do you feel like, should we get you a medal or something? (laughs) Well, tell me who the first two are. Uh, Matt Cundell and Alex Ronsley. (laughs) Okay, sure. I'm proud of all Canadians. I'm proud to be Canadian, so... Uh, sure. Yeah, you can you can you know play the national anthem later on going out whatever you like. <laughs> uh, before we dive into uh, the real stuff that I want to talk about, the meat and potatoes, I've always found it interesting. I live in Minnesota. I come from Nebraska, and they have a, a very distinct accent, especially the farther you go north in Minnesota. Uh, were you born with the the stereotypical Canadian accent that people think of? Did you have to get rid of it, or was it something that was never an issue well um there actually is no such thing as a stereotypical canadian accent there just like there's no such thing as a stereotypical american accent as you said you know people from minnesota sound different than people from massachusetts or sound people than uh, different than people from texas and you could say the same thing about canada um there are a few things i do which you know might jump out at you as canadian but no i have never altered my accent at all the stereotypical canadian accent is more what americans think the stereotypical canadian accent is it it actually 
doesn't exist. I don't want to burst the stereotypical bubble here or anything like that. But, you know, people from Nova Scotia sound different than people from Ontario, sound different than people from British Columbia. There are a few words I say a little bit differently. Um, but, you know, I say more tomorrow as opposed to tomorrow, that kind of thing. Um, but I, the way I speak is the way I've always spoken. I, I never... I never lost anything or changed anything. You know, there are just like three or four keywords that I'm aware that I say, I guess, in a more Canadian way. So if I'm on Sportsnet in Canada, I don't worry about it. If I'm on ESPN or the U.S. and and my brain clicks in before I say it, I might try to alter it a little bit. I like to talk to everybody about how they initially got their toe in the water for sportscasting. A lot of the people who reach the level you're at just know from a young age that wasn't the case with you. You went to the University of Western Ontario to major in actuarial science. Mm-hmm. What did you want to go into in actuarial science, and how <laughs> does it help you in any way as a sportscaster? Well, being an actuary, uh, back in those days anyways, you you worked in pensions or insurance. I was on the pension side, and uh, I had no intention of going into broadcasting. I had never given it one second of thought before I went to Here's another Canadian-American thing we say before I went to university, as opposed to saying before I went to college, but whatever, before I went to university. And and, uh, my parents had always kind of instilled in my sisters and me, don't just go to school, like get involved, get in, join a club, join a group, whatever. So I decided I wanted to sign up and see if I could write for the university newspaper, the Western Gazette, which was and is a a very good school paper. But so my first day down there in uh, in Frosh Week, there were like 100 people in line. I went and checked it out, and the line was immense. So I gave up, and I was walking back to my dorm and walked past the door, and all it said was Radio Western. And I knocked on the door, and, and somebody said, come in. And I went in. I said, is this like a campus radio station? And they said, yeah. And I said, do you do sports? And they said, yeah. And I said, do you need volunteers? And they said, yeah. And I started volunteering there. And, and I wasn't, you know, in a journalism or a broadcasting program, as you mentioned, I was studying actuarial science. And, and But on the side, I did a ton of broadcasting uh, throughout my first three years, anyways, the first three of my four years uh, in university. And it was great. I loved it. I did basketball games, football games, some hockey games, had a talk show, all sports. But still, at that point, I never intended to make a career of it. Uh, didn't do any of it in my last year because I wanted to concentrate, get the best grades I did and pass actuarial exams, which you have to pass outside of school, and then started working. And about three, four months into my first job, said, you know what, I'm, I'm not sure this is for me, and decided to get broadcasting a go. And it kind of saved up, now I'm, you know, this is a long time ago, this is back in the late 80s, saved up some cassette tapes of work I had done and sent them out to a bunch of radio stations and Luckily enough, got a job, like a part-time job, paying six bucks an hour, but a job. And, and so I kind of fell into this. I, I never really had any intention of going into broadcasting. As an actuary, that first, I believe you said it was about a year. What point did you decide, you know, this isn't for me? What about it didn't work? It, it just, um, you know, I'd only been there a few months. And it was a great opportunity, a great career. I'd worked hard in school. I'd gotten a good job. I was being treated very well. Like there was nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't right for me. And I decided that if I was going to, and it's funny because I'm generally not a, you know, I'm a risk averse person more so than I am a risk taker. But I decided, you know what, if you're going to go for it, go for it now. Uh, you know, I didn't, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have kids. I was only like 22, 23 years old. And I said, you know, let's go for it. And, and kind of, it kind of went to my parents and, and said, listen, I hope you're okay with this because they had, you know, helped me get through university, obviously. And, and, and I said, let me, let me give it two years. And, uh, if it doesn't work in two years, uh, I'll go back, I'll, I'll go back to school. I'll go to business school. And, and I actually wrote the GMAT and, and had gotten a deferred acceptance and so forth to, to, to business school. But it, it, it was just something about actuarial science. I just couldn't envision myself doing it for 40 years, 40 hours a week for 40 years. I, I saw what my boss was doing and I saw what her boss was doing. And, and I, you know, I saw maybe my career path. And again, it's, it's nothing against the industry. It, it just didn't feel right for me. And I decided if I was going to try to pursue something that I really liked, now was the time. And, and uh, you know, that's always been my message since then. It probably wouldn't have been before because I wouldn't have realized it, but my message since then, if I get asked to speak on like a career day at school or something like that, 
is do something you enjoy. You, you know, you got to do it for 40 years. So find something that you like and, and that it won't feel as much like work. I, uh, you know, everybody gets into a business for whatever reason they get into it and whatever's right for them is right for them. But like with my kids, I, I, I always said, uh, find something you love. Like, don't worry about money. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Like if you find something you enjoy doing, everything else should take care of itself. And you didn't have to stay at that $6 per hour position real long, if what I read is correct. A little bit after that, you ended up at a Fan 1430 in Toronto, which is the biggest market in Canada. How? What were the sequence of events that led to you being able to make that huge leap so soon? So I was working part-time uh, at my first job, which was in a city um, called Barrie, Barrie, Ontario, about 50 miles north of Toronto. And was still actually working for a while as an actuary Monday to Friday. I was doing weekends in Barry, And I'm quite sure I'm the only person in world history who was ever an actuary during the week and a radio broadcaster on the weekend. And I did that probably for about six months. And then somebody at the Barry radio station went on maternity leave. So there was an opening. So I took a full-time job there. Um, took a huge pay cut there back in the day, especially. Um, and wasn't making any money at all. Uh, but was loving it and worked in Barrie for about a year. And I had, like no joke, a friend of a friend of a friend who knew the program director at what was then known, as you mentioned, as CJCL in Toronto. And it wasn't an all-sports radio station yet. This is back in 1990 or 91. There there were no, there were, I think the only all-sports radio station around them was WFAN in New York. But they were starting to transition to more and more sports. They had the Maple Leaf rights, they had the Blue Jay rights, and they were starting to bring in more stuff during the day, more talk, that sort of thing. So I went in through this connection and had an interview, and they actually hired me on the spot to be their uh, weekend sportscaster because as they were transitioning to more sports, they weren't uh, so happy anymore with newscasters doing sports. They wanted people who knew sports doing sports. So I went down I was thrilled. I was like 23, 24 years old and did my first weekend of sports cast. And then they came up to me after and they said, you're, you're not quite ready yet. We're going to have to pull you off the air. And it was heartbreaking to me, crushed me. But they said, keep doing what you're doing in Barrie. And every Friday after your shift, I was doing mornings by this point in Barrie, bring your tape down, bring a cassette tape down and we'll sit with you and go over your sports cast. A great guy named Scott Metcalf, the news director at the time there, who, uh, to whom I'm forever indebted. And every Friday for two, three months, I'd bring my cassette in and we'd go over my, my sports cast from that day. And he'd say, okay, you're getting there. You're getting there. Do this. Don't do that. And whatever it was, two, three months later, they put me back on the air. And, and again, I started off in, in a part-time role. So now I'm Monday to Friday in Barrie. It's Saturday, Sunday at CJCL in Toronto. And about six months later, again, as they continued to transition into more and more uh, of a sports radio station, they needed people. And and I got hired to be kind of a jack of all trades, do some reporting, do some sports casts. I did some newscasts because I was doing that up in Barrie, just, you know, even just helping out the senior people, researching, getting them whatever they needed to, uh, for their show. And over time, as they became more and more of a sports station, they went to a 24-7 format. Eventually, uh, I eventually got an evening talk show and then it moved to middays and afternoon drive and so forth. So. Uh, it, it, it all happened kind of quickly. It was all very exciting and, and it was a rush for me. And, and, you know, I was an actuary at 22. I was working in Barrie at 23. I was working in Toronto at 24. And by the time I was 25, I was sitting down at what was then known as Sky Dome, the Blue Jays uh, stadium, and helping out on pre and post game shows on the Blue Jays broadcast. It was just, it, it was great fun. I, I was too young to, to know any different, but I was working whatever, 70, 80 hours a week and having the time of my life. How far was Barrie from Ontario, and what was that commute like? Uh, Barrie's about 50 miles from Toronto. They're both in Ontario. They're both in the province of Ontario. Ontario's a, a province, like a state in the U.S. So uh, Barrie's about 50 miles north of Toronto. So I started working there, uh, as I said, basically kind of fresh out of college. And I had moved back in with my parents for a while. Um, so I was just driving up and down. And then after about six months... I said, you know, this is getting to be a little bit too much, wintertime and all that. So uh, I was there about 18 months. And for the last year, I rented an apartment up there and lived in Barrie before getting the job at CJCL in Toronto. And then I, then I moved back down to Toronto. What is the worst weather you ever had to drive through? Um, 
Well, it, it wasn't in Ontario. It was uh, one. Uh, well, I'll give you three quick ones. One was um, if we fast forward a little bit, I did some junior hockey for TSN, uh, an all sport, an all sports TV state network up here in Canada. And I did a job in, I did a game in Brandon, Manitoba, which I think is about an hour and a half, two hours west of Winnipeg and the drive from Brandon back to Winnipeg, because we did the game, we were driving back to stay in a hotel in Winnipeg, take a first morning flight out. That, that probably is the scariest drive I've ever had. It, it was whiteout conditions and I wouldn't do it now. Like now I would just pull over and wait. But when you're 25, you do, you know, you do things probably that you shouldn't. I had a horrible snowstorm once. I did a game at Kansas and driving from Lawrence, Kansas, back to the Kansas City Airport, a bad snowstorm. Um, and then maybe the worst snowstorm I ever saw, and I didn't have to drive far in it, but I had a Kansas at Villanova game many, many years ago, got to be 15, 16, 17 years ago, and saw a snowstorm in Philadelphia that rivaled any that I've ever seen in Canada. And again, um, didn't drive far, managed to get from uh, the arena to the airport, flight was canceled, managed to get from the airport to an airport hotel, and just kind of hunkered down for 24 hours till it was over, and I was able to get out of there. So, uh, yeah, I've had bad weather on both sides of the border. I've done a lot more working in my life in the U.S. than I have in Canada. So even though the weather generally is a little bit worse in Canada, I've probably had more adventures down in the U.S. According to the timeline that I was able to put together, it was in 1995 that you began working uh, with the Blue Jays as the play-by-play broadcaster. What was the sequence of events that led you to to being the the weekend guy, to being the voice of the Blue Jays in just, it looks like, less than five years? Yeah, it's a couple of years. So I had progressed by that point at the radio station to where I was now the afternoon drive guy. This is like 93, I've become the afternoon drive guy. And I'm doing some pre- and post-game shows and um uh, on Blue Jays broadcast, and, and actually I'd started working for ESPN Radio at the time as well, but um, heading into the 19, or after the 94 season, which was the strike season, um, the Blue Jay broadcaster, a, a terrific broadcaster by the name of Jim Houston, he did the Blue Jays and he also did hockey, and after the 94 baseball season, he decided he just wanted to concentrate on one sport and that that was going to be hockey, so the Blue Jay job opened up. So I got a call, I don't know, like November of 94, um, saying, would you like to audition for the job? You know, in, in Canada, there aren't as many teams, there aren't as many broadcasters, right? So, and, and I think in Canada too, if they can, networks like to get Canadian broadcasters or hometown guys. So I was only like 27, 20, 27 years old, and I had no baseball play-by-play experience, none. I loved baseball. I talked about it a ton on my talk show. I did the pre and post game shows for the Blue Jays on radio, but I'd never done play by play for baseball and I'd hardly ever been on TV. So I went down and auditioned and kind of the story of my life. Again, they said, thanks, but no thanks. Like I've never gotten a job right away. I've always been plan B or we'll call you back or something happens. Um, so I don't get it in November. So great. You know, it never hurts to try. I go back to doing my talk show. And like in February of 95, I get a phone call saying, are you still interested? And I'm like, well, of course, but I thought you didn't want me. And they said, come on down. And they offered me the job. So I don't know who plan A was or BCD. I have no idea where I was on the pecking order, but I got a call like in February of 95 saying, would you like to do Blue So that's when I left, um, CJCL, which had become the fan by at that point, the all sports radio station and kind of jumped into play by play full time. And within a year, not only was I doing the blue Jays through another fluke, I was also starting to do stuff at ESPN uh, play by play at ESPN. So again, from 1991 through 1995 was just like a roller coaster ride for me. Those four years, you know, how, how much changed and how quickly it changed and, and, I found myself doing things I, I never even dreamt possible. And let's talk about that next fluke that got you with ESPN. If I, I'm assuming you're talking about the midnight phone call that you almost hung up on the yeah. ESPN executive <laughs> who called. Uh, tell us that yeah. story. Yeah, you researched well. That of all the flukes and all the sliding doors and all the serendipity, this, this, this is number one. I, I'm I'm at the fan doing probably a post game Blue Jay show or something like that because it was late, like 11:30 midnight. And the phone rings in the, in the newsroom, and, a, and I pick it up, you know, uh, fan 1430, 
Dan Schulman speaking. And then on the other end, there's a guy who says, uh, good evening. My name is Al Jaffe. I'm calling from ESPN. And I'd like to know if you'd like to audition for ESPN radio. Now, so this goes, this is back in like 93, I guess. And again, this is pre-internet. The world's a different place. I, like, I know what ESPN is, but I didn't know ESPN had a radio network, and we sure as hell didn't get it in Canada. So I thought I was being punked by my college roommate, Rob. And I say on the phone, man, that's pretty good, Rob. You've even, like, doctored up a New York accent. You say, you sound like an American guy. And there's this long pause on the phone, and then he, I hear again, let me say this one more time. My name is Al Jaffe, and now I'm like, oh, man, what have I done? And turns out it was legit. And I was still a little suspicious. So I said to him, oh, I'd love to talk to you about this, Al, but I've got one more sportscast. Can I take your number and call you back? And he says, sure. And he gives me a number, and I do the last sportscast, and I dial the number, and I call him back, and it's real. What did I know? And like two weeks later, I'm flying down to Connecticut to audition for ESPN Radio. And what I didn't even realize, because I was so young and naive, auditioning for ESPN Radio meant being on ESPN Radio, like a live audition. And I went down and did a weekend there. And, and so in 93, uh, I started doing, again, I was Monday to Friday. I went from Monday to Friday, Actuary, Saturday, Sunday, Barry, Monday to Friday, Barry, Saturday, Sunday, Toronto, and then Monday to Friday, Toronto, Saturday, Sunday, ESPN. Over like four years, I worked seven days a week, I would say 99% of the time. Uh, but, you, you know, you're young and energetic. So I, I'm down there doing radio. So ESPN knew who I was through radio. Then when I get the Blue Jay job, as we talked about before, I had to give up all the radio because now I'm doing the Blue Jay job. Um, and then it's like September of 95, my first year with the Blue Jays. And they asked me to fill in on a baseball game for them. They know me from radio. They know I do baseball for the Blue Jays. Somebody got sick or something. Again, another like just weird thing that happened. And I filled in on an ESPN baseball game, figuring it would be a one-off. And they said, great, send us a demo tape and we'll keep you on file. And the year before the world championship of basketball, like dream team two, dream team one was at Barcelona, the Olympics in 92 dream team two was in Toronto in 94. And I did those games for Canadian TV. So when I sent down my demo tape, it had basketball on it. And they said, we didn't know you did basketball. And I said, I didn't know you were interested in, in me doing basketball. And like two weeks later, I'm doing a college basketball game. And that was an enormous break for me. So I start doing the Blue Jays at the beginning of the 95 season, finish that season, and roll right into college basketball. And, and I've been doing it ever since. You mentioned doing the Dream Team 2. And this wouldn't have been in the same place. But you also did the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, mm-hmm. if I read correctly. And obviously anyone who followed that time knows that a lot of stuff was going on mostly in figure skating with Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding what was that experience like just being a part of all that craziness well it's funny I was there but I was doing hockey um, again for Canadian TV and again this is pre-internet so as far as I recall I don't think we had internet in 94 so when you're at the games you know it's not like I'm sitting at home watching on TV or getting newspapers at home, I'm working over there. So I was, I was calling home to family and getting more information from them about the figure skating stuff than I knew myself. I, I was doing two hockey games a day over there. Um, and I was the B guy, which basically meant I did all the non-Canada games. So if Finland played uh, the Czech Republic, I did it. If Austria played Norway, I did it. Uh, if the USA played Sweden, I did it. Uh, and it was phenomenal. It's the only Olympics I've ever done. And again, I was so young. I was 27. I was too young to appreciate what a, what a wonderful moment and opportunity it was. It went by so fast and it was gone and I haven't done an Olympic since. So, um, but it was great. Uh, it's my only, the only time I've been to Norway, the only time I've been at an Olympics, I still have like some of the, you know, the coat and the, some of the gear they gave us to wear and mementos and programs and memories. Right. So, um, again, it was in that kind of four or five year window where things were just going at a crazy pace and doing an Olympics is always something I'll treasure. What was the hardest name on the, the <laughs> Czech or Norwegian team? I imagine there were some doozies. Do you remember any of them? I, I, well, I only remember one because it was the first goal that scored in the first game I did. So 
a day or two before the first game, we knew our first game was Norway and Russia. And we asked, I don't know how or who we asked, but we asked if we could go see the Russian practice just to get familiar with their names. And they said, okay. And we walked in and typically there are about 20 players. I think in the, in the Olympics, it's a little bit more, maybe 22 on, on a hockey team. And about 40 guys came out on the ice. This is the day before the games, 40 guys are on the ice and none of them are wearing any numbers. So <laughs> to us, it's useless. And I guess they didn't, you know, they were going to let us in, but they didn't want us to know who anybody was in case we went back to the Canadian delegation or something. And I was like, guys, we're like, we're just the TV guys. But so we sat there and it didn't do us any good. So we get to the game the next day and I've got a decent idea who the Norwegian guys are because they gave us some information, but we got a Russian lineup literally 10 minutes before the game. And it's hard if you don't know any of these guys, you've never seen any of them play. And all of a sudden you're trying to memorize 22 names and numbers. Uh, the first goal of the first game was scored by a Russian name, Vyacheslav Bezukladnikov. And I remember that because of how long his name was and the fact that it was a miracle that I knew who scored the goal because we had just found out it was playing 10 minutes earlier. So, but um, you know, we all have our, our things that trip us up, but I've been pretty lucky I think that foreign names don't really bother me. You see them in hockey a lot. Like I grew up watching a ton of hockey in Canada. And so I grew up with Russian names, Swedish names, Finnish names, uh, at the time, Czechoslovakian names, uh, college basketball. You see it a lot too. So uh, the the names don't shake me all that much. I was just more worried about knowing who was who. So once you got to ESPN, you eventually took over for John Miller as the voice of Sunday Night Baseball. And I mean, that's what I knew you from forever, that in college basketball as well. But if I remember correctly, it wasn't necessarily the smoothest transition. Joe Morgan was unhappy about the, about the way everything turned out. How difficult was it replacing not so much Joe Morgan, but the legendary John Miller in that situation? Well, I, I had known John and Joe for many years, and I had worked with Joe a lot. Joe would do a lot of the Wednesday games, and I was doing Wednesday night baseball for a long time for ESPN. Then I had moved to Monday night baseball. Um, ESPN had announced they were going to make a change before they came to me and said, we'd like you to be the guy. So it wasn't like they came to me and said, do you want to replace John? It doesn't work that way. I, John and Joe's contracts, if memory serves, were up. And then they came to me, whether it was a month later, I, I don't remember, and said, we'd like you to do Sunday Night Baseball. So, um, you know, there's a bit of separation there. And like never in a million years would I try to get her campaign for a job that was occupied. And, and uh, I, I mean, I, I look at the John Miller side of it more because I'm a play-by-play -play guy. John's a play-by-play -play guy. And John's a legendary play-by-play -play guy, Hall of Fame broadcaster. And so it was intimidating just that in itself was intimidating replacing a guy like that. And I was the, the most nervous. I'll tell you the two times I've been the most nervous in my career were my first game on ESPN. That one I told you about when I filled in for somebody back in 95 and then my first game on Sunday night baseball in 2011. And the funny thing was, you know, John would take two or three games off every year. Uh, so I had done Sunday night baseball, maybe, I don't know, six, seven times in the years leading up to 2011 when I, when I took over, but I was still nervous and that went away probably by week four, week five, somewhere in there. Um, but it, it's, it's part of the business, you know, people, jobs change, people move on, people replace them and that sort of thing. And, and I, I have a good relationship with John. I have a good relationship with Joe and, you know, those decisions were made by the people who make those decisions, not by me. It's interesting to me uh, covering Sunday night baseball, it seems like it would almost be more like preparing for what we think of as a football game, you know, just trying to get everything ready for one day as opposed to a lot of the other major league guys that I've had that have the, the day after day after day. You, you, I'm imagining you really get an opportunity to dig a little bit deeper maybe than some of the other guys. What's the preparation like doing a game of the week type of schedule as opposed to the everyday schedule? Yeah, it's much different. And, you know, now I'm not doing Sunday nights and I'm doing uh, the Blue Jays and it's much different. So when you are a broadcaster for a local team, as I am at times for the Blue Jays, you see them every day. 
and the preparation kind of takes care of itself. You know the team like the back of your hand. And the other team matters, but it's not a 50-50 split because your audience is much more interested in the Blue Jays than they are in the A's or the Royals or the Indians. Um, as you said, for something like Sunday Night Baseball, and this applies to college basketball too, if you're doing a game uh, on a national network, it's the game of the week. You know, if you're whatever game we're doing, say we're doing the Cubs and the Cardinals, if you're a Cubs fan and the game's on Sunday night, you can't get it on your local channel. It's only on ESPN. And it's normal. You want to tune in and see what the quote-unquote national guys are saying about your team. Did they do their homework? Do they know your team well enough? And so, yeah, it's it's a lot of prep. Like like I'm not um, making it – it's – it's fun work, but it is work. It's, it's a lot of preparation getting ready. So, you know, um, you do the game Sunday night. Generally, Monday for me was flying home, don't do anything. Uh, you know, get reacquainted with family and all that stuff. And then Tuesday, a lot of times Tuesday, the pitchers pitch Tuesday who are pitching Sunday. So you record those games, you watch those games, you learn everything you can about the starting pitchers. And then I tried to watch as much of the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday games as I could. Uh, who's this reliever? Who's that guy they've called up from the minor leagues? Why is this guy leading off? He used to be hitting second, you know, that sort of stuff. And you just start compiling notes over the course of the week and getting as familiar with the teams as you can. Uh, fly in Saturday, generally go to the game Saturday, try to get information at the ballpark, get your game notes that the teams produce, come back Sunday, uh, have sit-down meetings with the with the managers. Again, compile your information and away you go. But yeah, it is I've never done football, but it is, I would imagine, like doing a football game. Very similar, as you said, um, because it's, it's once a week. And, and it, it's tricky because baseball is played every day. But if we're just doing one game, it was treated like a bigger than normal game because it was the only game on television at that time. It is or it was and is, quote unquote, in my mind, the game of the week. So I would imagine it is a lot like preparing to do an NFL game. As a play-by-play guy trying to figure all of this out, one of the things that I look up to you as is you're so good in big moments, and a lot of it's probably just experience being to five World Series and all kinds of, of different big moments throughout your career. But the one that I really found interesting that I'd like to hear about is the one that didn't happen when you got home run number 754 for Barry Bonds and... At that time, the way the tear he was on, there's a real realistic possibility that you could have been there for 755. What was going through your head? What preparations did you make to be able to make that call? Because you obviously are not going to script it, but how were you planning on delivering it? Yeah, no, I, I've, I've only scripted things uh, once, maybe twice in my life, and they were never for sports reasons. Uh, when the Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez was killed in a boating accident a few years ago, I scripted what I wanted to say on the air about that. But in terms of like actual sport, never scripted anything. It's just not me. It's not right. It's not wrong. Everybody's different. And, and I never did it, but um, whether it was Barry Bonds chasing Hank Aaron or whether it was McGuire and Sosa chasing uh, Roger Maris, which I was involved in a lot too, back in 1998, it's fun. You realize why it's, it's different than doing a regular game because, you know, the opponent doesn't matter. The score doesn't matter. You're there for one reason. You're there for those four events. Um, and you just, you just lock in and you try to document the moment as best you can. And one thing I always try to do in a big moment is less is more. Like if the ball goes out, don't say anything. Let the, let the natural sound, the crowd cheering, let the moment take over. What could I possibly say that's going to add to it? Say what you need to say and get out. So that's what I try to do. And if you ask me what my call was, I couldn't tell you for a million dollars. I have no idea what my call was on 754. But, um, you know, the bonds thing was complicated too, because there was all kinds of innuendo and allegations and people wondering about, was he clean or was he not? So that was, that was there too. Um, so it was fun. And the McGuire Sosa thing was fun. But, uh, you know, calling a World Series on ESPN radio, more fun to me, much more fun. That's ultimately what's it about. Who wins the game? And I, I got into this business because as a kid, as a sports fanatic, it was all about who wins the game. Let's go, to, let's go see the game. And, and that's still who I am and who I try to be on the air. And whether it was, you know, the first World Series I did in 2011 
or the Cubs beating the Indians in 16 and snapping the 108-year drought or whatever the case may be. Um, Those are some of the real highlights to me in my career. I'm interested. You brought up the Cubs-Indians, and just because the the podcast before this one was with Pat Hughes of the Chicago Cubs, and we talked about how he delivered that game-winning call on the radio. Obviously, his situation very different than yours. What was yep. your call? I should have looked this up beforehand. And what? how did you handle it? Again, I couldn't tell it to you verbatim. My brain doesn't work that way. Um, I don't script them before, and I don't remember them long after. It was probably fairly basic. I don't know if that would be the right word. I remember it was the slow chopper to Bryant, and I probably said something like, up with it across to first, and the Cubs have won the World Series. They've snapped the drive. I I think I might have said something like, a moment that many thought might never happen has happened here in Cleveland. I'm willing to bet a nickel on that, that I said something like that, but I didn't script it. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong again, but I kind of like that line actually now as I say it out loud again. You know, the interesting thing about that one is it happened in Cleveland. So in the back of your mind as a broadcaster, you don't have the same, obviously, um, the vibe in the ballpark when something happens on the road as you do at home. And radio is different from TV. You can lay out like crazy on TV because the pictures can help tell the story. You can't lay out as long on radio. You got to say a little bit more. So home road is a thing. Radio TV is a thing. And you kind of have to keep all those in mind as you're calling a big moment about how much you say and how much you lay out. And I've had the discussion with a couple different broadcasters of whether play-by-play is journalism. And to me, for the most part, it's not. But there's... There's times where it crosses over, and you had one of those times, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but you were on the air when the news about Osama bin Laden uh, getting Mm -hmm. killed came out. So you were breaking news as part of a game broadcast. Walk us through that experience. (laughs) What was going through your head at that time? One of the most surreal nights of my life, and probably in venues like this, the thing I get asked about more than anything else which is funny because if somebody said to me, tell me about the top 10 moments that you remembered your career, most member, whatever, I'm not sure it's on my list, but it, but I get asked about it all the time. So Sunday night, it was a Sunday night baseball game, my first year, 2011. And my broadcast partners are Bobby Valentine and Oral Hershiser. Mets at Phillies, eighth inning, seventh, eighth inning. And Bobby's sitting beside me and he nudges me with his elbow. We're on the air. The game's going on. And he shows me his phone, and all it says is, we got Bin Laden. It's a text somebody sent to him. We got Bin Laden. I don't, I don't remember who it was from. I, I don't think I ever noticed. And I look at him, and he looks at me, and the game's going on. <laughs> so I call a pitch, and I look at him, and I call a pitch, and I go on talkback, which means I can push a button, as you know, and I can talk to our producer in the truck without it going out over the air. And I said, hey, guys, do you have anything on Bin Laden? And again, the game's still going on. Call a pitch, ask Oral a question, talk to the truck, like juggling here, trying to figure out what's going on. And they say, yes, we got something unconfirmed. Don't say anything. Call the game. So I do that for another couple of minutes. And then um, you start hearing like a little buzz around the ballpark. People have phones, right? And they say to me, okay, we've got confirmation, very basic statements, say something like, And again, I'm trying to listen to them while calling the game, while Bobby and Oral might be talking, and I want to engage them. And so I make a very basic statement like ABC News is reporting that Osama bin Laden has been killed in like 20 seconds. And within a minute or two, again, as people with phones in the ballpark, they're getting texts from their friends. And the ballpark is buzzing. And a chant of USA, USA breaks up, like you're watching the Miracle on Ice at Lake Placid in 1980, like definitely loud. Um, and just so happens, some people are wearing USA hoodies or sweatshirts or golf shirts, whatever. They're wearing some shirts. So we start getting shots of them. The players have no idea what's going on, like nothing. Everybody's chanting. And we're trying to document this big story, the world's biggest story, and do the game at the same time. And at some point, we go to break. The inning ends, we come back, and we start up again. And now, like, they're 
this is not in the play-by-play handbook. Well, there is no play-by-play handbook, but if, if there was, this would not be in it. And at some point, Mike Tirico, a great broadcaster and a good friend of mine, sent me a text and he said, remember, you're at the place where more Americans are gathered right now than any other place in the world. This is big. And he was right. And I'm forever indebted to him for that text because the secondary story became the reaction of the crowd and what was going on there. Eventually, the players found out a cameraman or a security guard told them or whatever. And it was just an unbelievable scene. And of course, the game goes like 12, 13 innings that night. So we were on the air for a couple of hours. And having Bobby there was great because Bobby was the manager of the Mets on 9-11. And, you know, he was fairly front and center and, and visible during that time. So he was a great resource to talk about that in New York City and so forth. And the fact that we had one of the New York teams there. Uh, if I could go back, I would do it again. I, I felt I was fairly cautious and hesitant in saying some things. I was cognizant of the fact that I'm not American, I'm Canadian. So I wanted to be above and beyond incredibly sensitive and to make sure I didn't step on anybody's toes and say the wrong thing. So I played it super safe. But yeah, it was, it was a crazy moment. It was one of the probably the most surreal moment of my career. In 2017, you left Sunday Night Baseball. You weren't let go. You just decided you wanted to be around your family more in Toronto, uh, from what I read, that so you gave it up. How difficult was that decision? Let's just start. There. Very. Yeah, very. So, uh, again, this, this is not a, um, a complaint at all. I, I'm beyond blessed to have the career that I've had, but when you do Sunday night baseball and then you do the playoffs on radio as I do, and then you do college basketball, like you can see you work every weekend. Uh, college basketball is a huge Saturday sport. Sunday night baseball speaks for itself. Um, I had gotten divorced and had met somebody a few years later and was getting remarried. And I just decided I needed a change. I just decided I wanted to be home a little bit more, be home on weekends a little bit more. I'd been traveling hard, like, I don't know, 200 days a year or something for 24 years, something like that. And I, I just was looking for a change. I think sentimentally, I always imagined I'd, I'd wind up back with the Blue Jays at some point, too, having started there. And it just seemed like the time was right. So, But it was a very difficult decision. And I got a lot of calls and texts from friends saying, like, is everything okay? Or is, do you have a health issue? And I, and I, I understand the reaction. Because it's a great job, you know, and it's a high profile job and so forth. So, but I stayed on doing uh, the playoffs on radio, stayed on doing college basketball, which I still love. And I'm doing a package of Blue Jay games. I don't do all 162. I do a package, the vast majority of which are home games, which is wonderful for me. We have three broadcasters here and two of the three of us are on any given game. And most of my games wind up being home games because I'm the one of the three who actually lives in Trump. So it's a perfect scenario for me. I'm home much more. I've enjoyed uh, the affiliation again with my hometown team. Um, ESPN was wonderful about it and allowed me to, to, you know, step away, but still keep college basketball and still do all the games I'm doing there. So uh, it's really worked out really, really nicely for me. It's a tough decision, but it's worked out exactly as I hoped. You know, you mentioned this, and it's no secret that it's difficult with a sports casting schedule for people in this business to have healthy family lives. And you mentioned you went through a divorce and I'm not trying to dig up old stuff, but what would you, what advice would you give to younger up and coming broadcasters about finding uh, that family work balance? It, it, it's hard. It, it is really hard. And I feel I'm better at it now than I was then, uh, you know, going back to those early years that I talked about. You know, when you're 23 and then a Toronto radio station says, do you want to work for us? But you'll have to work late at, late at night after Blue Jay games sometimes. Well, of course you do. You know, you're you're not making any money and getting to go to the Sky Dome and cover the Blue Jays who are on the verge of winning a World Series. Of course you will. And then when TSN says, do you want to be the Blue Jay broadcaster? Well, of course you do. And then when ESPN calls and says, do you want to do college basketball? Of course you do. Uh, you, it's hard to say no. You're young. You're driven. Um, you're thinking about your career and you'll figure everything else out later. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And, uh, I always tried as hard as I could to, to have that, you know, that work-life balance, take the first flight home, take the red eye home so I could take the kids to school, then go home and have a nap, whatever the case may be. Um, but for anybody who's, um, and, and 
one of my sons wants to get into the business and I think is likely to do that. He's studying it in college right now down in the U.S. Um, for anybody, you've got to understand you may have travel. You may have crazy hours. You may need to relocate. You may have all of those things. <laughs> and so be prepared for that. It, it's it's a wonderful business, but it's not for everybody. And uh, not everybody gets to a point where they can say, I'm completely satisfied and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing work that I love and I'm making the money I hoped I would make. And I, 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 you know, I feel fulfilled. Like not everybody gets there. It it can be a tough business. And I know a lot of people who gave it a few years and then got out because they weren't getting out of it what they had hoped. So, um, you know, as you get older, I think you build up a little more equity in the business. You're a little more secure in yourself. And maybe then you can pick and choose and say, I want to keep doing this, but I, I, I think I'll give up that. But it's hard because as soon as you give something up, they replace you and and everybody's replaceable, you know, and and so everybody's going to decide how much work is too much work. Um, You know, as you get older, too, your energy isn't as good and flying around and late nights and so forth. um, You have to consider that as well. So uh, I wouldn't change a thing. You know, it's been a wonderful ride. I've been doing it for 27 years, whatever it is right now. But uh, it is important if you get into the business to to understand that. Um, you know, there's give and take between professional and personal. And this industry certainly isn't the only one that do that, you know, you know uh, doctors and lawyers and a ton of other, a ton of other, you know, police officers and firefighters and everybody, a lot of people have crazy jobs and crazy hours. Um, but you just gotta, it, it, it's better if you, if you go in with your eyes open, understanding that it does take um, a lot of effort on, uh, on your part to try to manage both professional and personal. All right, three more questions, and I'll get you back so you can get to your event that you need to get to uh, this afternoon on time. The first one is just kind of a funny thing that I read that I got a chuckle out of. It said that your very first home run call when you started with the Toronto Blue Jays, and you kind of just biffed it. Tell us the story of that home run call. (laughs) My first game, it was a spring training game. Um, And I remember saying before the game, to my broadcast partner and, sta- and the statistician, to Buck Martinez and Scott Carson, I just hope the first guy, who was Brady Anderson of the Orioles, I said, I hope he just hits a ground ball to second. I'm so nervous. I just want a ground ball to second to get started. So Florida, for me, for whatever reason, is just so bright and sunny there. And I, uh, I didn't know then. This was my first time working here. I just lose the ball in the sky sometimes. So the pit- first batter, the pitch is thrown. Brady Anderson hits a high fly ball to right center field. Devon White is the Blue Jay center fielder of the time, a gifted, graceful, gold glove winning outfielder. And he's gliding back and gliding back. And I think he's underneath it because he's gliding. But he's gliding because it's 30 feet over the wall. And he knew it, but I didn't know it. And I blew the call. Um, And I used to tell that story. uh, I still tell that story sometimes. And one funny thing happened. I'm telling the story one time. And a great Blue Jay pitcher, Pat Hemken, who won a Cy Young Award in 1996, is there at the event I'm doing. And he goes, Dan, can you do me a favor? And I said, yeah, what's up, Pat? He goes, I'm the one who threw that pitch. Could you stop telling that story, please, already? But my first batter that I ever had, I blew the call, and it got written up in, the, in one of the Toronto newspapers the next day, like, geez, we don't know if Shulman's up to the job. He blew the call and all that. And, and it's, uh, you know, that, that tested my confidence uh, quite a bit right on day one. One of the things I ask everybody before I let them go is I find – pleasure in hearing other people's what I like to call broadcast horror stories where uh, that's kind of one of them right there but where something just goes wrong that is mortifying at the moment whether it's all the equipment breaking down simultaneously or a horrible horrible broadcast venue uh, something weird that happens Uh, do you have any more of those that you could share uh, I was doing, uh, I think it was during the World Series with Chris Singleton in 2018, I want to say. And uh, we lost some power in the booth. So, like our mics just went out, boom, went out. And we didn't know what to do. I think Singy plugged in like a, like a little floor heater because it was really cold. Maybe it wasn't the World Series, wherever we were. And because our feet were cold and it shorted out some things. I don't know if that was the cause or not. That's never been proven. Just speculated. And our mics went out. And 10 seconds later, our producer uh, hands me a phone and he says, "Okay, I just called the hotline. 
call the game on the phone. And so all of a sudden I'm, I'm sitting there like I am right now holding a phone in my hand, calling the baseball game. And it took about three minutes till it got back on. And again, it's one of those things you do what you got to do. It's live. I remember a time a thousand years ago when I was back at CJCL, the old radio station in Toronto, and I was the sportscaster. The newscaster did four minutes, then I came on for two minutes. And the newscaster came out of the booth, and I had like a 60-second break to get in. But the printer had jammed. Um, you know, again, this is pre-internet, pre-computer you know, computer screens. We didn't have that. The printer jammed. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't print off my sportscast. And I was like, Scott, Scott, I don't know what to do. Like, I was just a kid. I don't know what to do. And he looked at me very calmly, and he said, go in there and do the best you can. You don't have another choice. And he was right. And I've always remembered that. When it's live, figure it out and do the best you can because you don't have another choice. You know, you can't go on there and Albert Brooks sweat your way off a broadcast. Figure it out somehow. So we've all had them. Uh, I think I've been lucky. None of mine have been career-threatening or anything, but, I, but I've had a few of them. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to? Well, when I was younger, Tom Cheek, the late great voice of the Toronto Blue Jays on radio, like when I was a kid, that's who I listened to all the time. Uh, I was 10 when the Blue Jays were born, and Tom Cheek was there from day one. So getting a chance to meet him and work alongside him to a certain degree was wonderful for me. Um, I have always loved Vin Scully. You know, if you're a baseball fan, how could you not love Vin Scully? Uh, Al Michaels, to me, the ultimate professional, you know, you can drop him into anything uh, and he's great. And, and some other guys who I mentioned Mike Tirico before, I think Mike is the smoothest guy I've ever met. You, he can do anything, just anything. Um, his preparation is great. His ability to do play-by-play or host or interviews or golf or football or basketball, whatever it is that he's done is just great. Uh, I love Sean McDonough. I love Mike Breen, who's the lead NBA guy for ESPN ABC and also does the New York Knicks. I could go on and on. I, I don't want to leave anybody out. But those are those are some of the guys um, that I've really admired. Some of them my peers. Some of them, you know, guys who have come from before. Other uh, some other uh, older, you know, radio baseball guys who are no longer around too that I love. Ernie Harwell with the Tigers. Harry Callis with the Phillies and Jack Buck with the Cardinals. Those three just absolutely loved all three of them. I remember like yesterday, the first time I met all three of them, how nice they were to me over the years. And, uh, you know, some legendary guys have called baseball over the years. Well, Dan, I could probably do this all day, but you got things to do. So I'm going to let you go. Dan Shulman of ESPN and Sportsnet. Thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. All right, Logan. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps to make the show better. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, Make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.